Some words, some expressions, some statements are so very rare that when you hear them, they have a funny way of really getting your attention. And the one that comes to my mind is this. I was wrong. So rare. So rarely do we hear that. That when we do, it gets our attention. Case in point. Um, 1968, Captain Kohi Aso uh, managed to land his DC-8 with 107 people aboard some two and a half miles out in San Francisco Bay. Uh, there was no inclement weather at the time. Uh, he managed somehow to be able to set that DC-8 so gently down into the bay that few, if any, of the passengers in their testimony later even knew that it was water that they had landed in. He, he's so, so skilled on the one hand in, in what he was doing. The, the nose was just slightly up. The plane settled into the water. The, wheel, the landing gear then settled on into the mud. Everything was, you know, as far as this kind of thing goes, uneventful. In fact, so much so that no one even got their feet wet as they disembarked and got in the life rafts and made their way to shore. But of course, this is not really according to plan, right? This is not really the way uh, that the end of that flight was to go. So you could imagine there were hearings, and there were various parties representing various interests there at that hearing. And the lead investigator asked Captain Aso this. This is the quote from 19, late 19, I guess it was 1969 now, the hearing. Captain Aso, in your own words, can you tell us how you managed to land that DC-8 stretch jet two and a half miles out in San Francisco Bay in a perfect compass line with the runway. Captain Aso's response was classic. I messed up. <laughs> Actually, if you go back and read the transcript, that's not exactly the way he put it. It was a little edgier than that, but this is a mixed audience. But it wasn't his verbiage that got everyone's attention and then has become so memorable. It was, the, it was his candor. It was his honesty. No excuses. I messed up. In fact, that's now known as the ASO response uh, when it comes to investigations like this. Here's my question. Why is that so rare? Why is that so blooming unusual? To just say that. To just be willing to own that kind of thing. For any of us. And what might need to be happening in our hearts that we might actually genuinely be able to say such things when in fact we are at fault. Well, if you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, we are continuing in this series in the Beatitudes that's part of a larger series in the Sermon on the Mount. That's part of a larger series in the Gospel of Matthew as a whole. Matthew, if you're trying to find that, is the first of the books of the New Testament. It is the first of the four Gospels that we have. Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, and John. We are in Matthew 5. We're going to be uh, looking in particular at verse 5, but I do want to read the whole of what we oftentimes refer to as the Beatitudes. So I'm going to start in verse 1 and read all the way through verse 12. So Matthew Chapter 5, starting in verse, verse 1. Hear now God's word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. 
And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Would you pray with me for a moment? Lord, as the psalmist says in Psalm 1, we, we do want to be like the tree that is planted by the streams of water, yielding its fruit in its season with leaves that do not wither, all that we do prospering in the richest, deepest possible sense. We do not want to be like the chaff that the wind drives away. And so with that, we ask that you would give us ears to hear. We ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that would respond and that indeed in the most wondrous way would beat in cadence with your own. And we know that that is really a miracle that we are asking for and we know that you're the only one that we could go to to ask for such a thing. And so we ask. And we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. I was reading an article the other day about the decline of the American Museum. Biases and agendas rule the day. Uh, David Brooks wrote a piece on this a few years ago, and uh, he, he wrote about the National Museum of American History and how it contains practically nothing of the um, events and persons and ideals and ideas that drove, have driven so much of American history. In fact, he goes so far to say as that, that visitors today, if you go to the, the Museum of American History in, in Washington, D.C., you will find precious little written about Columbus or the Puritans or the Founding Fathers or the ideals of the Constitution or the Revolution or the war between the states or the world wars and why we fought them. Uh, Brooks goes on to say this quote, Whatever subject is being addressed, you will see a lot of dishes and farm implements. The small World War II section shows what barracks look like with authentic footlockers, shovels, and plates, but nothing on why the men fought. If the curators of the Smithsonian's American History Museum were asked to do an exhibit on the book of Exodus, they would devote room after room to Israelite walking sticks and totally ignore the Ten Commandments. Now, what Brooks is getting at in this larger article is this, this tension and contrast between uh, subjective agendas and objective facts in history and how sadly it seems that the subjective is, is really winning the day. And, and I bring this up because it, when I read that, it reminded me of this, this word that we keep finding you know, eight times over in this series of Beatitudes, blessed. And it's critical that we keep in mind as we're looking at every one of these Beatitudes that this is an objective statement. It is not a subjective description of your emotional state. It's not happy or in a good mood are those who. 
but rather is an objective description of one's state of your life, of your heart, of your mind, of what's driving all of you and what you really are. What Jesus is giving here is, is an assessment. He's saying this person, this kind of person who can be described in these eight ways is to be admired to the degree these things are true. They should be envied. They should be imitated. They should be emulated because this is what life is supposed to be. This is what it's supposed to look like. These eight things. And so based on that, he says, blessed are those who are, and then you fill in the blank. Jesus is holding up before our eyes what life is supposed to look like. He is making clear what our lives, in fact, are supposed to look like, not just in general. And so it is then imperative that we would heed this, that we would hear this, heed it, and pursue it. That raises a question. What would that look like? What would it look like, for instance, for our lives to be shaped, just this one, I mean, it's not, you're not supposed to isolate these, really, but just this one for this week's purpose. Verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What would, our, what would it look like for our lives to be shaped by such an idea? Well, as we've done this in the last several weeks, I'm certainly going to do it at least today, maybe even for the remainder of the series. I don't know. But um, breaking it down into these three categories, these three questions, to get at that other question, what would it look like? And that is, again, you've heard me say this before, we have a who, we have a why, we have a how. Who? Who is Jesus speaking of here? Why? Why are they being described this way, as being blessed in this rich, full-orbed sort of way? And how? How could it be true that our lives could be described in that way? How could it be possible that maybe, maybe, this could be true for us? Well, let's, let's look at this together. First, who, who are they? Who is Jesus speaking of here? From the outset, we need to understand that the common views, the common understanding, the common definitions of meekness, the common views and the biblical view are worlds apart. Worlds apart. There's really no overlap whatsoever between the two, even in ancient times. I mean, who was it that was admired? Who was it that was looked towards? Who was it that was held up as the hero, the mighty warrior, right? Think back to the, the, the old myths. The mighty warrior who... Uh, refuses to submit, who through their great skill and prowess and power pushes back against all the opposition. That's the hero, even from ancient times in the ancient literature. And that carries on to today. Who is it that we really, frankly, look towards and, and oftentimes want to emulate? The self-assured, the self-confident, the self-dependent, the one who says, make it happen, take control, and I've got it under control. And anything else that might be described as meekness may be nice. You can put that on a Hallmark card. It's sentimental, but it's deemed to be utterly impractical. Meekness. You see, meekness, the common understanding, ancient and modern, is that meekness is really more of a vice than a virtue. And a biblical understanding is completely completely upending that, seeing it, oh yes, as a virtue. Now you've heard me say already, and I'll say it again, that these Beatitudes were causally or sequentially 
Uh, you start with the first, it leads to the second, which leads to the third, which leads to the fourth. They build on one another in a logical sort of sequence. They're, they're, they're not isolated, as I've heard it said, like pearls on a string. They are, it's a part of, of a whole package here. So, that being said, the person who is, in fact, recognizing themselves to be spiritually impoverished, spiritually bankrupt, having no resources within themselves, therein, because of that, mourns for sin. These are the first, leads to the second. Mourning for sin broad across the world. We talked about this. this broad, uh, looking out in the, in the lives, sin as it's manifesting itself and its effect and impact and the destruction that it's causing in the lives of the people around them. And then sin in their own hearts. Mourning. Mourning all that. And as a consequence of that, that leads them to meekness. A true view of yourself. Not the self you put down on the resume and that you talk about in the job interview or on that blind date or put on your Facebook status. But a true view. A true view of yourself that manifests itself in your relationships with other people. That's what meekness is. It's a gentleness that comes out. It's a kindness that comes out with deep roots. It's a fruit that has deep roots in a true sense of yourself. Spiritual poverty and mourning your sin flowing out of that in your relationship with others Meekness. So, who is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the meek. He's talking about the unpretentious, the unassuming, the undemanding. That's who he's speaking of here. Now, who best exemplifies this more than anyone else? Now, for centuries, it was Moses. Moses is referred to actually as the, a, a very meek, a powerful figure. So, by the way, meekness does not mean weakness. You know, I mean, Moses was no wilted flower by any stretch of the imagination. But notice a meek man. But who perfectly, perfectly now exemplifies this character trait? Well, Jesus himself, the meek one. The meekest one that there ever could be. Just throw out, by the way, I don't know what you grew up with, you know, that gentle Jesus, meek and mild. You know, the, the, the guy who uh, is, is on the shampoo commercials with a great complexion, and boy, he is buff, and he looks really good, and it's all airbrushed and kind of soft lighting. That Jesus, throw that out. This is not G gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is mighty Jesus, great and kind. Mighty Jesus, great and kind, who uses all of his eternal power for others' sake. Isaiah 53, verse 7. Certainly a, a place that we can go to that captures something of, of this. Isaiah 53, verse 7. Where Isaiah writes, He, this is describing Christ, centuries before He actually arrived. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Or Peter writes in the letter that we know as First Peter, and this is moving way over to the right in your New Testament. After uh, Hebrews, you find these books uh, by James and 
than uh, Peter. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, writes, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Again, this, this picture here is one who is using great strength for the sake the well-being of, of others, which is an utter flipping. It's an utter reversal. It's a complete reversal of our instinct, which is to stand up for ourselves quickly when we feel the need to do so. And we are very slow to stand up for others, really, when there is a need to do so. And Jesus is completely upending that with what we're seeing here. Now, how, how might that be reversed, not just the description, but in our own hearts, in our own lives, how might that get reversed? It begins with that true view of ourselves. So going back to that first and second beatitude, that spiritual poverty and that mourning for sin, that's where the meekness begins. Okay, uh, how, how does that come about? We'll talk about that in a little bit, but let me just unpack just a little bit in terms of how we can break down this meekness. Meekness, how, how, what are the arenas in which it might display itself? Meekness before God. Meekness before God in the context of suffering. Remember? Undemanding. So, not bitter towards Him about our circumstances, but rather trusting Him and His goodness and His care and His purposes even in that meek towards God in suffering, meek towards God in prayer, of course asking, of course asking, but not demanding. Not putting a, a caveat or an or else in our prayer lives. Meek before God, meek with other people. I alluded to that something already, you know, in terms of a willingness to be quick to move towards others and to stand up for others when it comes to when there's issues of justice and oppression and taking up, you know, speaking up, speaking up does, is not precluded, is not ruled out by meekness. In fact, sometimes it could be demanded. Um, but not just that, meekness with others in relation to others in conflict, right? So when you're called out on something, when somebody points out the way that you've been wrong, or the way you've wronged them, our quickness, our immediate response is to say something along the lines of, my friend, you don't know the half of it. That's genuine meekness. If you only knew, you'd be accusing me of worse. And you'd be right. Not defensive, you see. Because what do we have to defend as those who are spiritually impoverished and mourning our sin? What do we really have to defend? Ourselves? And our spiritual bankruptcy? So not defensive, um, but, but rather approachable, right? Teachable. People know you're going to be willing to listen. What that begins to, to look like. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus is showing us the way our lives should look. We need to hear this. We need to heed this and pursue it. Now, that's the first thing. The second question following up from that, not just who are they, this is the meek that he's speaking of, but, but why? Why are they then described as blessed? Why is he holding that up? Why are these individuals, this kind of person, why are they being held up as the kind of person that we should admire and envy and emulate and imitate? 
Well, because they shall inherit the earth. Uh, Jesus very clearly is hearkening back here, in fact, really quoting directly from the Old Testament. Uh, you can keep your thumb with me here in Matthew 5. Turn with me to Psalm 37. It's quite striking when you begin to see the Old Testament background that this beatitude in particular is building off of here. Uh, Psalm 37, starting in verse 8. Uh, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. But keep reading. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. This is rich Old Testament imagery that Jesus is tapping into here in this beatitude in Matthew 5, verse 5. The imagery of the land. Oh, so deep, so rich in the Old Testament idea. The, the, the images there. Let me just give you two themes. Two themes. One is of abundance. The land, what it represented. What it, what, when mention was made of the land to the Jew, to the Old Testament believer, it's an image of abundance. I mean, it was what? The land of milk and honey, which in agrarian context means a land of ample pasturage and supply, a land of rich uh, resources and even luxury, milk and, and honey. So it's an image of, of abundance and also an image of, of assurance because it's the promised land. This land of milk and honey, it's assured, it's a promise, land, a promise given by none other than the Lord Himself. Now there's some 2,100 years of history and cultural memory just at the point where Jesus is saying what He's saying there by the, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Abraham is given this promise. Go back in Genesis, read this. In Genesis 12, this promise of a people, of a seed, of a nation, and a land. The, his, his seed, his, the patriarchs, then are sojourners in this land, wandering in this land. Years later, Moses and the Israelites are wandering about, longing for this land in their years spent in the wilderness. Finally, through Joshua and the judges. It's an up and down period, but they take possession of that land, all the more so in the, the age of David. And Solomon. But then, of course, things degenerate and fall through the kings that come after them. So you have the, the exiles. You have the invasions and the exiles. And you have just, a, again, a longing for that land and all that it represented in the assurance and the uh, abundance. And then you have the prophets who come with the promises. The promises of that land being restored. But beyond that, all that that land, as wonderful and beautiful as that land was, and real as it was, and it's being settled, it in the end ultimately was but a symbol. A, 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 a physical, tangible metaphor for preparing the people for an even greater land. A greater assurance of greater abundance that was coming through Christ. And that's what is being spoken of here in Psalm 37 and what Jesus is speaking of even in Matthew chapter 5. 
the image of the land, the inheritance of the land. Think with me for a moment. What? Who gets an inheritance, right? It's just speaking this is code for a relationship with God, a living, vibrant relationship with God. Who gets an inheritance? A stranger? No. Your children. Your dependents. Or as Psalm 37 describes in those verses leading up to the point where I read a moment ago, those who trust in the Lord, those who delight in the Lord, those who have committed their way to the Lord, those who wait on the Lord, the meek, as Jesus says, summarizes in Matthew 5. The, the meek to them is the land, putting that in quotation marks, and all that it stands for in its abundance and the assurance of it. And, and you know, back, back to the what what is an inheritance? Not just to whom does it go, but what is it? It's a gift. And you see this in the tension of Psalm 37. It's not to be taken, but received. It's not to be earned, but to be given. Now, those are, you may say that's just, you're just nuancing, you're just wordsmithing. No, I'm not. Those are vital points to keep in mind here. As Jesus said, blessed are the meek, these ones, for they shall inherit, they shall be given the earth, the land, and all that it represents, all that it is, all that it was, all that it will be. So the meek then are described as the blessed ones. Why? Because God is saying it is to them that He is gladly going to give all that they need and most deeply desire. Now when? Tuesday. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, this, this is in the, in, in the context, you know, Jesus is describing us as as exiles and sojourners, we are much like the Israelites wandering there in the wilderness. You know, so you have this, this tension between, we talked about this in this series, between the now and the not yet, between the first and the second comings of the kingdom. Now what does that mean in terms of our inheriting this inheritance? Well, it means that we are called now to fight, to wage war against all manifestations of the curse. For as the curse is found, all manifestations of sin out there in the world and in the lives of people we care for and in our own hearts. But we need to reckon with this. Victory, total victory, is not going to come in this life. We will taste something of it here and, and there. But we are waiting. Because ours is not an abiding city. Not yet. Not yet. But that day is coming. So the calling is never to give up but to hold on. It's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's what Jesus is saying. Lastly, so who is this? Why is this? Who is this that he's speaking of? Why is this this description of blessedness being given to them? And how, how can this be true of us? Let me suggest two things. First, and these are both counter-instinctive, uh, counter-instincts, counter just our way of thinking and doing things. One is to worship a different hero. Um, we talked about this some weeks ago in the introduction to the Beatitudes. Um, our instincts for he the hero have gone all awry, just all askew. Now, we ha it's right that we would have a hero. 
and we all do, you see that across civilizations, across all cultures throughout the history of the world, you'll always see this one figure held up to be the example, to be the model for people to, to follow and emulate and imitate. And, and as children, it's, it's not just across cultures and across nations, but across generations, right? So you, you start off as a little tyke and you have the, the, the person, the, whoever it may be, that you look up to, that you admire, that you want to be like. And we as adults don't outgrow that. They, they, it matures, but it's never a limit. We still have individuals that really, frankly, when you come right down to it, are our heroes. But the problem is, is, that, is that our compass is all askew. Our priorities are all whacked. Our understanding of what is truly the heroic is, is flawed. It's broken. Jesus is the hero of the heroes. Jesus is the ultimate hero. Jesus is the one who shows forth himself as the meek one who comes in the incarnation. What humiliation! The Son of God, the one through whom all things were made, coming down as a human child, being born as he was, where he was, to whom he was, for what he was. To what? Born to die. Incarnation connected to crucifixion. That's why He's come. He is the hero of the heroes. We need to worship a different hero. That's the first thing. Second, we need to long for another country. He has the two sides of this beatitude, right? Blessed are the meek. Worship a different hero. For they shall inherit the earth. We need to be looking for another country. Life is good. I got the t-shirt. I got a few of them. It says that on there. Life is good. Um, time with friends. The laughter of children. The beauty and wonder of nature. The, the ability at times to enjoy the fruits of your labor. All those things are good gifts from the hand of God to whom we owe deep abiding thanks and so much more. Life is good, but this life is not all that there is. And that's the, that's the rub. We think at times it is. We act at times as though it is. We do. We do. The reality is that we are to worship not the gifts, but the giver of the gifts. Not creation, wonderful as it is, but the creator of the creation. Again, as I said a moment ago, we have no, in this life, no enduring abiding city, but there's one a coming to which we must, we can and must, Truly, in the richest sense, look forward to. I don't mean that in the sense of like I'm looking forward to lunch. I mean like my gaze, I'm moving forward step by step because of what I see definitively and definitely coming over that horizon. My hope in Christ and the finishing of what He has begun. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So how? How, do, how can these things be true of us? By worshiping a different hero, longing for another country. Let me add this. How can that be true? Though? How do we do that? We need new sight. We need a new way of seeing. You can't just will this. You can't just resolve to do this. We need new sight. I had an eye exam this past week. Uh, just routine, don't worry. But you know, your, your eyes, normally, they don't get any better as you get older. So I'm sitting there, literally, 
looking into this crazy-looking device. And the doctor, he's over here, and he's doing his thing with the, the instruments and messing with my head, I think, really. He's saying, so tell me when you can't see it anymore. So he starts off, you know, clear, less clear, fuzzy, foggy. I honestly think that when it comes to our view of what the heroic is and our view of what the country is we were made for, I think we, at best, our sight is very fuzzy. Very fuzzy indeed. We need not just contacts, you know, splat it on, like, like that's going to do it. We need spiritual eye surgery. Now, who are you going to trust to do that? You? Some guru? Me? Him. The meek one. Who else do you think can make you meek? The one who was meek for you, who lived a life of meekness, the life of meekness that we were supposed to live he lived that in our stead and died in our stead, taking the penalty on himself for all of our lack of a meekness, abundant lack of meekness that he took on himself. That's who we go to. And he promises to restore that sight. Slowly but surely now, fully, finally, one day. One day. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, the old joke goes like this. Winding this up. The old joke goes like this. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, I, if that's okay with the rest of you. <laughs> the joke works because it's hitting at something. It's true. There's a deep part in us that recoils from the idea of being meek. Every one of us. Every one of these Beatitudes, there's something in us that recoils from that. Even as that, this is, Jesus is describing what the blessed condition is, there's a deep part of us that's recoiling from that. It's out of step. Jesus, you're out of step. That's what we're saying, right? You're out of step with our instincts and our sensibilities. What does that tell you? That our instincts and sensibilities need to be deeply challenged and changed if they're so out of step. The best of literature speaks to the human condition. Think about it like, like that. The best, even fiction, speaks to our, our, our longings, our, uh, our, our desire for purpose and meaning and direction in life. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote, wrote about this uh, a bit, and he, he said that the best of literature, whatever age and whatever culture it's coming from, is, is not should never be understood and, and misunderstood as being a distraction from reality, but rather a window of insight into reality. Now, Tolkien, not surprisingly then, his own work is an example of this. The first volume in his great classic work, The Lord of the Rings, there's a scene that captures something of all that we're seeing here in this, this beatitude. Um, it's, it's, the scene is, is referred to often as the, the Council of Elrond. 
And it's captured fairly well in, in, the, in the film, and I suppose The Fellowship of the Ring. It's the first of the films, and I don't doubt many of you have seen this. And um, So, so the, the, the representatives from the major races of Middle-earth have assembled at this place. And they've assembled at this place because they're in desperate need to come up with a way to destroy the dreaded weapon of the Dark Lord Sauron, the One Ring, the Ring of Power. And the, again, the film captures this pretty well. Elrond steps forward. Here's the quote. The ring was made in the fires of Mount Doom. Only there can it be unmade. It must be taken deep into Mordor and cast into the fiery chasm from which it came. One of you must do this. And then one of the, those assembled there steps forward and protests. Protests rather strongly. He says, one does not simply walk into Mordor. Its black gates are guarded by more than just orcs. There's evil there that does not sleep. The great eye is ever watchful. It is a barren wasteland riddled with fire and ash and dust. Not with 10,000 men could you do this. It is folly. And then that assembly begins to degenerate. They begin to point fingers. They're yelling at each other. They're accusing each other. The whole thing is about to fall apart until this small voice speaks up. Frodo Baggins, the hobbit, the halfling, who basically has to stand on a table, literally, to be seen, and to be heard, he says, I will take it. I will take the ring to Mordor, though I do not know the way. And what is Tolkien doing there? Tolkien's messing with us. Frodo, you need to understand, is the weakest. He is the humblest. He is the least likely of all of them to be able to do such a thing. And what Tolkien's doing there, very subtly, is confronting our ideas of weakness and strength and helping us to see that they can and must be deeply challenged and changed. And that's exactly what Jesus is speaking to here in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Would you pray with me? Lord, our instincts are so off. We hear the word heroic and we do think power and prowess and might and strength and skill. We don't think weakness. We don't think humility. We don't think gentleness. We don't think meekness. Our desires and our goals show this, they reflect this, we settle for so little and we're made for so much more. You know us well, you know our struggle with this. We struggle deeply with acknowledging ourselves to be poor in spirit. Oh, we sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. But rarely do we mean it. We nod uh, politely about the idea of mourning for sin, especially its effects, but we'll point the fingers towards others before we'll even think about looking at ourselves. And then to be told of meekness, a meekness that we must have in our hearts deeply before you and each other. Oh Lord, have mercy. You alone can make us this way, the way that you are calling us to be. So just like, just like as you, would, you came up to Bartimaeus and put your hands upon his his eyes and gave him sight. Oh, we pray that you put your hands upon our own eyes and give us sight that we might see we will be blind. 
unless you do this. So we ask humbly that you would. In your name we pray. Amen.